We come this morning to uh, John chapter 20. If you have your copy of Scripture, I would invite you to turn there with me. Uh, We are picking up where we left off last Lord's Day. We saw that first resurrection appearance of Jesus to Mary Magdalene outside of the tomb, that loving restoration of the Savior, calling her by name, taking away her grief, taking away her disconsolation, and then sending her out to be useful. The Lord charged her to go and find the other disciples and tell them that the Lord is risen indeed. And so we are picking up where we left off last Lord's Day, and we're looking this morning at John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. And we're going to read down to verse 31, John 20, verse 19 to 31. Um, You will notice, if you have looked at this passage, that uh, the events of this passage, the end of John 20, go together, and yet they are separated by two Lord's Days. Um, As you're reading through John, you'll notice that he often notes that Jesus appeared eight days later. That is him noting that he is coming on the first day of the week. Um, Just as an aside, that's why we worship on the first day of the week, if you've ever wondered, he transformed the old covenant Sabbath and he brought about the new covenant Lord's Day. Um, he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the risen Christ. And so it is right that he appears every eight days, as it were, to the disciples as they're gathered now together. And so we're looking at John, 19, John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. Now the beloved disciple writes, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails... And place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I wonder if I asked you this morning to tell me the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the name Thomas, that probably everybody in this room would say doubting. And that's a bit unfortunate because nowhere in the scriptures is Thomas called Doubting, and it's certainly not his first name, if you were wondering. He is not Doubting Thomas. And it's a bit of a misnomer when that phrase has been applied to him in the same way as people have thought there are three magi and there, are, there was a whale that swallowed Jonah, these things that we sort of appropriate and, 
and just take for granted that this must be so. And, and it's uh, going to be seen this morning as we look at this passage together that Thomas is called the twin because he had a twin brother we know nothing about. And um, we are going to find out that he is, first of all, rightly, we could call him absent Thomas because he is not at the evening worship service, which is why he is unbelieving. I'm just going to put that out there. Lots of people say that in church history. That's not original to me. He is absent Thomas, and then he is unbelieving Thomas. He actually says in the most calculated way, I will not believe. I refuse to believe unless... I see the marks, I put my hand in the marks, in the prints of his hand, and in the side of the Lord Jesus. And yet, one of the things that we find as we're looking at this now second resurrection appearance of Jesus is just how compassionate Jesus is with weak disciples. Remember, all the disciples, they had all left, they had all fled, they are, they are in hiding together for fear of the Jews. They are not living great lives of faith in Christ. And remember, if you were here last week, we noted that Peter didn't even believe when he saw the empty tomb. And John came to believe, started believing, but made that statement that as of yet, the disciples did not understand that Christ had to be raised from the dead. And so they were living in that in-between, between faith in Christ and unbelief. And Thomas is going to be held out as the supreme example of that at this point in redemptive history. And yet, at that time, Jesus is going to come to them. And he is going to come in the most marvelous way to weak, foolish, even unbelieving disciples to strengthen them in the knowledge of what it means for them that he has been raised from the dead. I want us to see two things this morning. I want us to consider the resurrection commissioning of Jesus. He is going to commission the disciples there in that locked room. He is going to tell them exactly what he has in store for them. And then I want us to consider the resurrection compassion of Jesus, the compassionate way in which he is going to restore Thomas, who has hardened his heart, as it were, in unbelief at this point in time. Well, notice as we consider the commissioning, the resurrection commissioning of Jesus, we are told on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, this is Resurrection Sunday, this is the first Easter, and now it's nighttime, and we're told that the disciples were in a room with doors locked because they were afraid of the Jews. Now, there is something commendable about what the disciples are doing because remember, John told us they all went to their own homes. Now they have come back together. They've realized they needed one another. They realized that they can't live the Christian life without one another. And this is why what we're doing right now is so significant. Why is it so important that God has said, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the manner of some? Because when we do as we're going to see with Thomas, is when we begin to drift. The disciples realize they cannot live the Christian life and do what Christ has called them to do without one another. Um, I don't know if you know this, there are roughly um, 61 explicit one another passages in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul will give that myriad of 
uh, Christian commands to Christian living, and they always respect one another. The disciples get something of that. This is commendable. They know that they're to be gathered together. This is arguably the first evening worship service, as I've said. And they are probably together praying, and yet it's not commendable because they're afraid of the Jews. They still are gripped. Their hearts are gripped by what is going to happen to them. If they crucified our Lord, what is going to happen to us? Um, That is not uncommon to our hearts when we think about the world's hatred for Christians, when we think about the malice and the, the opposition, when we think about what it might cost us in the workplace if we take a stand for Jesus, fear can grip our hearts. Uh, Jesus is going to dispel that fear by speaking a very clear word to them. Notice that as they're in that upper room, and I don't know how he got in there. He, yes, the resurrected Jesus could go through walls, clearly. And they are locked in that upper room, and he appears right in the midst of them. And notice the first thing, this is so important, don't miss this, the very first thing that Jesus says to the eleven is, peace be with you. Now, I don't think this is just a cordial greeting. I don't think this is um, just a sort of glib way they would greet one another. Now, I almost never disagree with John Calvin on anything because it's never good to disagree with John Calvin. But I think he is terribly wrong here. He says this is just a casual greeting. No, Jesus is picking up on what he had told the disciples in the upper room. Remember, as he is going to the cross, he says, my peace I give you. My peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives do I give unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If I go to prepare a place for you, I'm coming to receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. Jesus is picking up on what he told them before he went to the cross and what the risen Jesus is saying to them as they are gripped by fear is listen, I have accomplished everything to bring about the peace that you need with God. I have made peace by the blood of my cross. And the Apostle Paul makes a huge deal out of this in the epistles. When he wants to tell you the greatest thought you can have about Christ and your sinful soul, it's that he has made peace with God through the blood of the cross. Think about that. How does the risen Christ treat you today? He says to you, if you are his disciple, he says, peace to you. I have come to give you my peace. I have made peace for you. It is finished. The enmity, the hostility between your soul and the living God is ended, and you can come into the very presence of God because Christ is risen. He is our peace, Paul will say. He himself is our peace. And notice that Jesus does this twice. He does it first in verse 19. And then notice verse 21. I feel as though John is trying to emphasize this to say, this is the main thing I remember. When Jesus came to us, he said, peace be with you. And then he said again, peace be with you. Um, You know that in scripture, when there is a doubling of things, it is often set out to emphasize the really important thing. And oftentimes the thing that we fail to grasp. Um, I don't know about you, but I need to hear the risen Christ saying to my sinful soul, peace be with you. 
I have made peace for you. There's no reason to fear. There's no reason to be anxious. There's no reason to fear what the world is going to think about you because I have overcome the world. Think about that. The resurrected Jesus, physically present before the disciples, is him saying, I told you that I was going to overcome, and my being here before you is proof and evidence that I have overcome. What greater evidence could there be that he had conquered Satan and sin and death itself? He went into the grave. He came out of the grave. He took away the sting of death. He took away the judgment we deserve. And he stands now before his disciples and he says, peace to you. Now, he does that as a segue into commissioning them. Notice what he now says in verse 21. As the Father has sent me, Even so, I am sending you. So what is the risen Jesus most interested in? He is interested in strengthening the minds and hearts of his disciples to know that he has work for them to do, just like he sent Mary back to them as an apostle to the apostles. He is now saying, as my father sent me, I am sending you. I have work for you to do. My resurrection ensures your fruitfulness in ministry as I have called you to go out and to make the gospel known. And notice what he does. He does this very odd thing in verse 22. When he had said this, he breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, if... if you just read by that very quickly, and you didn't know your Bible well, you might think this is a very odd thing. Why would Jesus breathe on them and say, receive the Holy Spirit? Well, there are several right answers. Um, One of those is that, remember, Jesus had said to them in the upper room, if I go away, it's better for you. Because if I don't go, the defense attorney The comforter, the paraclete, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It's why we confess in the creed that we believe that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. You see, this is it. The Son is saying, I am going to the Father and I am going to give you my Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ and he is going to come. And he is going to dwell in you. He is going to lead you in all truth. Jesus is essentially making good on what he told his disciples he was going to do. And yet he is also doing it to let them know that the ministry he's calling them to can only be lived in the power of the Spirit. Um, Your Christian life and my Christian life can only be lived in the power of the Spirit. We should be in the habit of asking the Lord to send the Holy Spirit to us in greater measure because we can't do anything apart from his Spirit. Jesus, I think, is showing the disciples that apart from him, they can't do anything. Apart from the Spirit empowering their preaching, it's going to be weak and empty. It's going to fall on deaf ears. And you know that at Pentecost, that, that great outpouring of the Spirit accompanies the preaching of the Word, and so many are converted on that day. I think there's another reason. I think that Jesus is breathing, as it were, new life into the disciples. Where is the first time in the Bible that we're told that God breathes the spirit of life into someone. It's a creation. Remember, when Yahweh breathes 
into man's nostrils the breath of life and man becomes a living being. Here, Jesus, I think, is showing that he is breathing the spirit of the new creation into his disciples because what we need at the end of the day, what those disciples needed, what they are going to tell others they need is newness of life in Jesus Christ. Listen to this. John Calvin says here, all the grief which had been occasioned to them by the death of Christ was now dispelled by his new life. He is in a sense saying the new life I have as the risen Jesus I am giving to you. Isn't that awesome? He's saying I am the first fruits of the resurrection and I am imparting to you what is true of me. And even as I send you out to proclaim the gospel, I am telling you, it is going to be empowered by the new resurrection life that I have come to give. One of the wonderful things, by the way, of pastoral ministry is feeling as though you have failed miserably in the pulpit and being met at the door and someone saying, I don't know what happened, but I felt like God was speaking into my soul this morning. That's what Jesus is saying. The Holy Spirit is going to accompany the preaching of the gospel as they are sent out, as they go out. And notice now he talks about the message. Notice verse 23, another very enigmatic saying of Jesus. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Now, without going into this in great detail, I want to say, Jesus is not teaching that I or any other man has power to absolve your sins. Only God can forgive sins. What he is saying is that as the apostles go out and as they preach Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins, and as men and women receive that word and believe in Christ, he is saying their sins are forgiven because they have believed the message I have given you to preach. And if they don't receive it, it has all of the divine authority of Christ saying, you are not forgiven. Now what's also interesting and I don't want you to miss this, is that Jesus is telling us the central message of the gospel. You know, there are a million voices on the internet telling you every kind of justice issue you should feel guilty about not caring about enough. And if you don't feel that, there's something wrong. And there are so-called Christian ministers who say, that the gospel is being active in social justice. No, it is not. No. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins because you know what? You can involve yourself in every kind of good cause, and you should be involved in good causes. But on Judgment Day, the only thing that's going to matter is, has God put my sin away from me? to an extent that he has said, I will remember it no more. And Jesus says, the gospel is so powerful. And the accompanying work of the Spirit, enabling you to believe in him, is so great that the central message is, I have forgiven all of your sins, all of your iniquity, I will remember no more. I have blotted out like a thick cloud your sins. I have cast your sins into the depths of the sea. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us because there is one thing and only one thing that you need more than anything in this life and to know that you and God are right because of the blood of Jesus and he's forgiven your sins. And that ought to draw your soul to him. That's the thing that draws us to Christ. The Lord Jesus stands ready to pardon you. 
When you go to him, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That's the epicenter of Christianity. This is it. If you are a believer, it's because you have said, Lord, I need my sins forgiven, and I believe that Christ has accomplished that by nailing my sin to the cross. I was driving. He's going to hate that I use him as an illustration. Sorry, Eli. We were driving this week into our neighborhood, and I think it was Eli. Sorry if it wasn't. One of my sons said, hey, Dad, guess who the greatest sinner was that ever lived? And I said, well, Adam. I mean, that was a pretty great one. And uh, I could have said me. Paul says he was the chief of sinners. And then I said, let me guess, you're going to say Christ. And he said, yeah, Jesus. Now, what he meant was not that Jesus actually sinned because he was the sinless one. He is the sinless one. But because the Apostle Paul says that on the cross, he who knew no sin became sin for us. All of our rebellion, all of our waywardness, all of our love of what is evil and dark and wrong in this world— all of our misplaced affections, all of our wrong thoughts, all of our greed and lust and anger and pride and lack of self-control and every other sin that we engage and trade in were imputed to Jesus. All of the sins of all those for whom he came to die, which makes him functionally, constitutionally, the worst sinner who has ever lived, though he never sinned because God dealt with him according to our sins. And that's why Jesus could say, whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. If you have heard the message, if you have trusted in him, you're forgiven. I do want to ask you this morning, if you've never done that, if you've never gone and said, Lord, have mercy on me, forgive me, I would urge you to do that. That is the only right response to what Jesus is commissioning the disciples to go out and proclaim I want us to secondly consider the resurrection compassion of Jesus. I've noticed that, noted that Thomas wasn't there. Thomas was just as uh, despondent as Mary, except he wasn't seeking the Lord. He, he had chalked it up in his mind that Jesus was dead, that perhaps somebody had stolen him out of the grave. And even the disciples coming and saying to him, notice Thomas, verse 24, one of the twelve called the twin was not with them. The other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Now think about this. All of the disciples have said, he appeared to us, we saw him. And Thomas is so decided that he is not going to believe unless he does the scientific experiment that even the witness of every apostle that he has just lived with for three and a half years means nothing to him. Um, I think a lot of us maybe resonate with Thomas. It's interesting, none of the other gospel writers put these accounts in the gospel record, but John does, and many theologians believe it's because John is an old man now. Thomas has probably died as a martyr, tradition says, in India, where he planted churches. And now that Thomas is dead, John can bring forth these stories without embarrassing him. And this was an impacting story for Thomas, 
This was one of those, for, for John, this was impacting. He remembers it. It's etched in his brain. Notice what he's going to say just after this in verse 30. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. These are written that you may believe in him. And so it's fitting, isn't it, that John gives us, as it were, the greatest illustration of a wavering disciple who is living in unbelief at this period and and needs Jesus to stoop to him with great compassion. Um, You know, Thomas appears three times in this gospel. Once at the grave of Lazarus, where after Jesus raises Lazarus, he says kind of cynically, well, he's going to Jerusalem, let's just go with him to die. You get, a, you get an insight into Thomas's temperament. Let's just go die with him. And then in the upper room, when Jesus says, where I'm going, you know, and you know the way, Thomas says, Lord, we don't know the way. And then, and then Jesus says those great words, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so Thomas perpetually is showing his weakness. And now at the very end of the Gospels, Jesus is risen from the dead. And Thomas is going to show the greatness of his unbelief and his weakness and his incalcitrant heart, as it were. Even, even the testimony of the disciples. Now, now think about this. That means you could listen to sermons about Christ your entire life and walk away not believing in him. Even the testimony of all the other disciples means nothing. And Thomas says, notice, Thomas says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, you do know what Thomas is saying, right? He's saying that's never going to happen. He's not expecting that to happen. He's saying, I need the grossest, most raw manifestation of Jesus in the flesh to convince me that I'll believe. Now, let me say this this morning, because Jesus will condescend and will let him do that. But you do know that seeing is not always believing. You see, Thomas's unbelief is, if I can see, if I can touch, then I will believe, And yet, the Bible is full of examples of people who saw and never believed, walked away. They saw him in the flesh. They saw his miracles. They heard his teaching, and they walked away. Multitudes of people, multitudes saw and didn't believe. Remember the account in Luke of the rich man and Lazarus, and the rich man dies, and he goes to Hades. And remember, he is in torments there, and he asks Abraham, as it were in heaven in this story, if, if Lazarus could just give him a drop of water. And, and then he asks Abraham, please send somebody back from the dead to my brothers so they don't come to this place of torment. And Abraham says, no. They have Moses and the prophets. They have the scriptures. Let them hear them. Even if one should rise from the dead, they will not believe. I remember 20 years ago, The Passion of Christ came out. I still haven't seen it. I'm going 20 years strong, y'all. And uh, I was working in a restaurant in Greenville, South Carolina. I was the only believer. Everybody else was an unbeliever. They all ate lunch over there because they hated me, and I ate lunch by myself. A very interesting experience as a new Christian. 
And, uh, and on one occasion, when the Passion of Christ had come out, a girl who is decidedly not a believer said to me, you know, my boyfriend and I are, are going to go see the Passion of Christ, and I guess you're going to go. And I was like, actually, no, I have no desire whatsoever to see it. And she was like, why? And I said, well, I mean, besides Second Commandment violations, I said, you know, it's not going to do anything for you. Um, Jesus makes very clear that you can, and Jim Caviezel's not Jesus, and he's way whiter than Jesus. That's not going to create faith in your soul unless the Holy Spirit enables us to believe. We will never believe. Even if Christ appeared bodily in the middle of this congregation right now, unless the Holy Spirit enables us to believe the gospel, we will not believe. Nevertheless, Jesus condescends to Thomas's weakness. Listen to this. J.C. Ryle, the Anglican theologian, said it is, it is impossible to imagine anything more patient and compassionate than our Lord's treatment of this weak disciple. He does not reject him, dismiss him, or excommunicate him. He comes at the end of the week, apparently for the special benefit of Thomas. He deals with him according to his weakness, like a gentle nurse dealing with a wayward child. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? The only one that had the right to say, Thomas, get away from me. Depart from me. You didn't believe? I have no more desire to see you, is the Lord Jesus. And he is the only one who condescends with such compassion all the way down to our very weaknesses and says, I am going to restore you, I am going to revive you, I am going to build you up, and I am going to make you strong in the faith where you have been weak in unbelief. Um, Ryle goes on, I'll just read this last one to you. He says, our Lord has many weak children in his family, many dull pupils in his school, many raw soldiers in his army, many lame sheep in his flock. Isn't that good news? If you feel weak, dull, lame, if you feel that spiritually, hear what Ryle says, our Lord has many weak children, many dull pupils, many raw soldiers, many lame sheep, He bears with them all. He bears with you. In whatever state you're in, Jesus bears with you to draw you to him. He says, happy is the man or woman who has learned to deal likewise with their brethren. There are many in the church who, like Thomas, are dull and slow, but for all that, like Thomas, are real and true believers. Y'all, I'm going to make a confession. I'm really glad Jesus doesn't treat me the way the majority of people would treat me. When I read the anger and vitriol of professing believers toward one another online and then the hatred of the world, I mean, wow, I'm really glad the Lord Jesus is so much more full of compassion and grace and mercy and kindness, humility and gentleness than we are, because we would not have been compassionate to Thomas. My best friend always says to me, you know, most relationships can't even endure one offense. We're so ready to write somebody off, defriend them in our hearts. Here, Jesus has every right to do that, and he, he stoops. 
And, and he shows himself to Thomas. And notice he comes just for Thomas. He says, Thomas, put your finger here in my hands. Put your, put your hand in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Now in God's mercy, Thomas is going to believe. And he's going to make that great declaration, my Lord and my God. He realizes what John said at the very beginning of this gospel. That in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And now at the end of the gospel, Thomas, who has been unbelieving, says, my Lord and my God. One of the greatest confessions of all of church history, born at a very moment when he was just living in unbelief. Think about that. He goes from great hardened unbelief to incredible statements of faith in a moment. That means the Lord can change you and me. And the Lord wants us to believe without seeing him. Notice what Jesus goes on to say now. Verse 29, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. You know, Simon Peter was in that upper room, and he would have heard this. And in 1 Peter, He says this about the believer in Christ. He says, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Whom having not seen, you love. Um, You know what's really interesting? I want to leave you with this thought too. Thomas thinks that Christ really can't be risen unless he is bodily there with him. But Jesus came because he knew everything going on in Thomas's heart. The invisible Christ, who made himself visible in that room, already knew what was in Thomas's heart. He already knew why Thomas wasn't gathered together. And I'm going to say this this morning because it's very important. Jesus knows every single thing going on in your heart. Every joy, every sorrow, every moment of faith, all the unbelief, bitterness, anger, he knows it all. And he doesn't have to be bodily present here to be present always with his people. Remember, Jesus said as he goes back to the Father, he says to the disciples, Lo, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. Here's the wonderful thing. What produced faith in Thomas was the Holy Spirit working in him, but it was those wounds of the Lord Jesus. Don't miss that. When when your faith is low, when your joy ebbs and flows, there is one place to go, and that is to the sacrifice of Jesus. You go back to the cross. We, by faith, see the wounds. We see the blood in the water coming from his pierced side. And, you know, this has been the impetus for some of the greatest hymns in church history. Uh, Arise, my soul, five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. He still has those wounds. He has those as marks of his sacrificial death for you, to forgive you, to cleanse you, to heal you, to save you, to redeem you. Listen to this, forgive him, oh forgive, they cry, forgive him, oh forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner 
die. Or how about this Samuel Rutherford when he is talking about glory, glory, dwelling in Emmanuel's lamb and seeing the lamb as if he were slain for all of eternity. That's how the Apostle John saw Jesus ascended as if he were a lamb slain. And listen, Rutherford said the bride, that's us, the church, the bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace, not at the crown he gifteth, but on his pierced hand. If you're a Christian, you are going to look at the pierced hands of Jesus in glory. Because that is everything. Those are the marks. Um, Jillian Welch, the folk musician, has a beautiful song about this. Um, the marks of his hand. We'll know him by the marks on his hands. Rutherford said, We will not gaze at the crown he gifts, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. Now, I don't know where you're at today. I don't know where you've been in your life spiritually. But I know that what Jesus did for Thomas, he did for you. And I know that what he says to Thomas, more blessed is it for those who have not seen and yet believed, he says to you. And at the end of the day, John tells us what the Lord wants more than anything. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. I want life in his name. I hope you want life in his name. And the risen Jesus holds out his hands and his side to you in the preaching of the word and says, do not be unbelieving, but be believing. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would make us a people who see by faith the wounded Christ, the eternally wounded Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you that even now you are seated on the throne as a lamb who was slain. We thank you for your great compassion and humiliation that you would condescend to stoop even to the weakness of Thomas, to his unbelief. And we pray, Lord, that you would do that for us this morning. We pray if there are any in this place that uh, have hardened hearts of unbelief, that you would soften those hearts that you would open their eyes, that you would cause them to cry out from the heart, my Lord and my God. We pray that you would manifest more of your presence with us. And we pray that you would make us a people who walk by faith and not by sight. So Lord, would you help us? Would you cause these things to bear fruit in us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.